Something brought you here to where you are today. A trust, a confidence that you can delve into the unknown of a master's or a PhD project and come out with answers to questions that no one has asked before. This confidence is what fueled you so far. And during this time, it has grown with you. It may have suffered some blows and weakened now and then, but it has become one of your greatest strengths. Today, we'll be talking with Mark Roberts about how candidates with master's and doctoral degrees are valued in the job market, and about how the pressure and challenges of grad school help develop traits that are prized by employers in certain industries. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. Before we dive into today's episode, I just want to let you know that I've prepared for you a resource sheet to help you take a snapshot of your current situation and start defining your profile for the job market in your areas of interest. You can download it by visiting papaphd.com and following the instructions in the website footer. Welcome to the show. So today we're talking career choices with Mark Roberts. Mark made the move from academia to industry after completing his PhD in ecology and evolutionary biology at Princeton and teaching appointments at Yale and McGill. Since 2003, he has held different employee and freelance positions as a medical writer and editor. This year, Mark partnered with former colleagues to found Stratonym, a specialty medical communications firm comprising a network of expert consultants. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thanks, David. Um, I appreciate you having me on. And I'd just like to say, I think your podcast is a great idea. And I really wish there'd been something like this for me to refer to when I was uh, considering leaving academia. Yeah, that, that's the idea. It's to give back to the community. So thank you. So now I'm going to let you talk a little bit more about yourself and, uh, and how you got here. Okay, sure. Um, maybe what I'll do is I'll, I'll work backwards and I'll just say a little bit about what I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. um, the new company that I've started with uh, colleagues, Stratonym, uh, it's a medical communications company that works with different clients at pharmaceutical companies around the world to help them to convey basically the research behind their products, uh, to convey that research to decision makers like prescribers, you know, doctors, um, and also government or private health plans that reimburse those prescriptions. Uh, the kinds of things we do include projects like uh, working with study investigators on a, on a clinical trial to develop manuscripts for peer-reviewed biomedical journals. Um, we'll also help uh, develop posters and slide shows for medical conferences. Um, and we also work with uh, teams at the pharma companies to develop purely internal documents for their own use. Uh, one of the, the main types of projects we work on is something called a global value dossier. And that's a big compendium of all the information on the disease, the current treatments for that disease, also kind of what the gap is in those current treatments, the unmet need, okay. and what that new drug they have brings to the table. Um, we, we've really got a very strong focus on drugs for rare diseases. And this is kind of a personal preference for me because I find it really, really rewarding to work in this area where there's a huge unmet need for effective treatments. And so a new drug for one of these rare diseases, it really makes a huge difference in the lives of patients. Um, so that's what I'm doing now. It's, it's quite a shift uh, for somebody who in grad school studied foraging behavior of hummingbirds <laughs> <laughs> and um, for, for my uh, my last degree uh, inheritance patterns of a polymorphism in butterflies so nothing remotely related <laughs> to the medical field excellent well the, that's that's what i want to hear about how you got from one to the other <laughs> <laughs> so uh so you you're you went you were mentioning your uh, your graduate studies and and your research uh, and and how they're very different from what you're doing now. So, can you can you go back in time a little bit and and uh, let us know uh, 
No, how was finishing your studies for you? How was uh, grad school? How how did it go? Especially, uh, did you have any obstacles, difficulties, uh, or you know, finishing? The idea is is a little bit to to talk to listeners that, that might be finishing or they might have just finished, and to uh, and to tell us how you went through that uh, that uh, transition. Okay. Um. Well, I'll say that it's something I'd have to take a step even further back than uh, grad school to answer that question. Um, ever since I was a very small child, I was fascinated by animals and you know and their behavior. And it was probably around the age of five or six years uh, that I discovered there was a job called zoologist. <laughs> and I thought that was the greatest thing. Awesome. <laughs> and so I was set. That's all I ever wanted to be from the moment I found out about that. I never wanted to be a fireman or an astronaut. No, a zoologist. Uh, just a zoologist. So that took me um, all the way to university into my PhD program. And that's when, during the PhD program, that I discovered that working on the same specialized question for years on end was just not my cup of tea. Um, the uh, the part I liked best about it was crunching my data and writing it up. You know, it was nice to see my research in print, and and I, I had the luck of getting a paper into science, and that cool. was fun. But after that, you know, that gratification it was very short lived every time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so, just from an emotional perspective, it didn't justify all the research needed. You know all the uh, experimentation and, and um, planning needed to make that possible, mm -hmm. in, in, you know, in my psyche. <laughs> and I know it's different for everyone. Um, and it was funny because uh, I think it was clear to even the profs that I was just not, you know, having a great time there. Um, and at my thesis defense, when they had sent everybody else out of the room and were going to make their decision, they, my, my uh, advisor asked me, okay, Mark, one question. Did you enjoy your PhD? <laughs> and I, I knew what the right answer was, but I knew he would expect me to give the truth. And I said, well, no. <laughs> okay. And he said, congratulations, you're free. <laughs> and that's really how it felt <laughs> no it, it's interesting yeah so you had a calling but then the nitty-gritty of how things actually are done ended up uh, not fulfilling your your uh, your needs your personality etc your interests that's exactly the case but you found out that you were good at, at crunching numbers writing up and that you liked it. So, you know, there's always two sides to, to a coin. Yeah, that's, that's actually how I decided what to do after. Because uh, the one thing I really enjoyed um, back then was that end stage of communicating the research. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, after being in academia for a really long time, I wanted to do something that was more applied where I could see a real-world impact to it. Um, and I figured that I should look for a field of business where I could use my experience and interests from grad school and the things that I liked to do back mm -hmm. then. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I found was medical writing. Okay, so that was, that was really a great fit because, uh, you know, honestly, no matter what your branch of biology is, in your university studies, mm -hmm. just by virtue of doing a graduate degree there, you develop a familiarity with biological systems and how to do an experiment. It's like an intuition, you know? So, um, so say a clinical trial has been done, it's very easy for one of us to understand its study design. Uh, you know, things like disease processes, mechanisms of action of drugs, it's, it's not really that hard to adapt to. It's true. Just the jargon and 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 uh, terminology, where you know a lot of medical, you know, medical terms and things like that. We may need to study them afterwards, but a, a huge part of them, we just you, just by going through those studies and all the 
the different subjects that we study, we, we know them. So yeah. Yeah. I agree. Well, so you were lucky to have, you had a calling, and then you, you had a sort of, some sort of disenchantment with it. But in that process, you found your new calling. So that, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So now, given that, that there was this disenchantment and that, you know, often if for people now going through their PhD, they may hit this wall of, of, well, oh, this is not, this doesn't exactly go the same way that I had pictured it in my mind growing up. How, what attitude, what main attitude, what principle can you share uh, that, that accompanied you and that uh, empowered you to, you know, to say, okay, no, even though this is not exactly what I was uh, imagining, I'm going to you know, push through and I'm going to finish and I'm going to complete my studies? Um, I never, ever considered dropping out. So even though I wasn't having the best time with the research, there were so many other aspects to my program that I, I got so much out of. Um, you know, social aspects, even just the, mm -hmm. the friends that I had in grad school that I, I really never, ever thought that I'm going to drop this PhD. Um, I had a very long time in that degree, seven years. I did take one year out in there, but overall, from beginning to end, it was seven years. Um, and by the time I got to the end, I was just so ready to be finished it that that <laughs> was quite motivating okay. to, to get wrapped up. So I know a, a lot of people kind of at that end stage, they get stuck and... Um, you know, kind of start spinning their wheels. That didn't happen. I actually had an easier time getting things uh, flowing at the end than in the beginning and the middle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you had the, this uh, this impetus to finish, and that was like fueling you. So I, I feel that also you, you know, and also knowing you that you're you're, you're the type of person who we'll start something and finish it because that's how we roll, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's right. And this was, this was something which wasn't being done for anybody else. You know, it wasn't uh, doing that degree for um, approval from anybody outside. It was just something that since childhood, I knew I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've never, ever regretted doing that degree um, where I went uh, and, and finishing. It's, it's given me skills that I use on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Of course, of course. And um, even though it feels that, you know, you were self-motivated, um, you, you, you went into, into the project because of your own uh, passion for, for the, the, the domain, for the study area. Um, were there still moments, especially when you were finishing and, and thinking, okay, after this, comes uh comes the job market were there moments where you you had fears uh you had uh, anxieties about okay what's coming next how am i going to you know show uh, an employer that i'm yes i've studied all these years but i am employable and i have skills that i can that i can uh, put to profit right um well i had a little bit of a transition period that buffered that chalk of going straight from grad school into medical writing. Because one thing that I, I absolutely loved during my uh, graduate career was teaching undergrads. Okay, okay. So, you know, ever since my uh, uh, master's of science at uh, University of British Columbia, and that was in the zoology department, every year I, I TA'd, I was a teaching assistant, um, and then when I was at Princeton, I was a TA as well throughout. And then when I finished my research there for my PhD, I taught one semester in population ecology at Yale. Okay. And then came back home to Canada and taught the biostats and methods in biology courses at McGill University. That's very, very interesting. Uh, I feel that that probably that's what you're going to say, but uh, that there's also a lot of uh, commonality between that experience and what you do today. I mean, teaching and uh, and uh, helping people understand concepts and reach academic uh, objectives. I feel that that has probably also given given you a lot of tools and a lot of uh, uh, um, skills 
that you use daily nowadays. That's a hundred percent true. Um, you know, although I don't get the feedback of standing in the classroom and interacting with students, I still feel that I'm helping people to understand something they didn't know before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because really, that's what medical writing is about. It's explaining the design and the results of a study and putting those in context. So that's really very similar to teaching. The one thing that uh, also helped me was because I was teaching in a university context, I went from grad school to another university and then to another university, and then there was some continuity there. Yeah. But I realized pretty soon that um, it would be difficult to make a respectable salary just teaching. You really mm -hmm. need to be a full prof. Uh, and then you're, you're teaching, but you're also obliged to do your research and do your grant applications. And those were things that I knew weren't me. So it was during the time that I was um, lecturing that I had the idea of making the move to medical writing. Um, and honestly, although it might seem a bit scary to leave the university environment that I've been in for so many years, uh, when you think about it, um, when you're in your graduate degree, you have to find a question that nobody in the world knows the answer to, right? Definitely. <laughs> Otherwise, what's the point? And then you set out to answer that question yourself. Now, that's pretty brave. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, so compared to grad school, what I do now is, uh, is pretty much failure-proof so long <laughs> as I knuckle down and do my work. Of course. Um, so I, I feel that people who have gone through... Um, a graduate degree do obtain that, uh, or they should hopefully obtain that self-confidence that, mm -hmm. you know, I went into something where success wasn't guaranteed and I figured out a way to make it work for me. Yeah. And if you can do that, then in business afterwards, you just remind yourself of, of how you did that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and it's, it's really powerful. And I actually do that consciously. It's funny because I, I interviewed uh, someone uh, not so long ago who from his current office can see uh, the, the, in, the institute where, uh, where uh, he did his, uh, his uh, PhD research. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and he says that whenever he has a, a difficult moment, uh, he said that uh, whenever a difficult moment comes up uh, at work, he looks back at the institute and he says, "No, this is not difficult at all. I'm gonna, I'm gonna definitely beat this, and uh, it's gonna be fine." <laughs> it's it's exactly exactly what you, what you're saying, uh, but with a you know with a kind of a direct uh, the direct effect of looking at your institute. <laughs> exactly, it's just seeing it, seeing where you've been <laughs> um, in the flesh, and. Um, I would imagine that they would have the exact same feeling Like they were grateful for going through that experience because it, it just uh, kind of is like an inoculation against the fears and insecurities of the business uh, world. So it's, I'm going to jump a couple of questions. You, you kind of touched on something that it makes me want to ask this, uh, which is uh, it's, it has to do with, uh, with, transferable skills and um, the question is uh, you know people might think uh, uh, that upon leaving grad school after PhD and and jumping into the the pool of, uh, of finding a, a job or and defining their non-academic career that uh, you know oh they they may think oh I have lost these many years because I, I didn't get any real life skills um already from what you said before uh, you you've mentioned uh, some some skills that you even today are still uh making use of for uh, the the activities that you develop but um i i'd like to maybe ask you to be a little more specific in sharing maybe what two or three um skills have been your greatest assets in in reorienting your career and which ones uh, have been valued the most by your employers or your peers uh, in, in, the, in your domain of work? Right. Um, 
Well, I would say that I understand where that question is coming from because um, I I did hear similar uh, concerns from friends of mine who were also thinking of doing something different that, you know, they had worked on a really, really specialized question. Um, and, and quite often it, it's a um, kind of a catch 22 because you would feel that you're overqualified and that you have this very high academic degree and therefore you would expect a certain status in life now, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. Um, if you, if you were to continue in academia, you would end up as a prof, which is a prestigious position. Um, so on the one hand, you feel you have something valuable, but on the other, you question whether the actual skills that you have acquired are really transferable and um, able to secure you an equally uh, well-paying and respected position outside of academia. Mm-hmm. So that's the flip side of it. Um, and wh- I'd say the hardest thing for me when I made the shift from academia to medical writing was that the first medical writing job I took, the salary was about a two-thirds, I would say, what I thought I was worth. Mm-hmm, but I I, I, in the end, I took it because I really wanted to break into that industry, and I, I figured I wouldn't be stuck at that salary for long, which turned out to be true. Um, so... Um, I think that's a worry, but what I would say is that anybody who goes through a graduate degree, the skill that they learn, not the ones who, who you know, fail out, obviously, but the ones who succeed and get the degree, they develop problem-solving ability. Okay? I mean, you think about your own research. You had to figure out how to answer your thesis question, right? Yes, definitely. Yeah. So that, that problem-solving ability is a really huge asset. And I'd say one of the biggest advantages people with a master's or a PhD have over someone who only did a bachelor's is that they've had much more experience problem solving mm-hmm, thanks mm-hmm. to their own research. Um, you know, unless unless you did independent research during your bachelor's, the path there is pretty well laid out for you to follow in your coursework. Yeah. Um, in my second medical writing position that I held. Um, I managed a team of medical writers. I was the managing editor there. Um, and so I was doing a lot of hiring of new medical writers. And, and what I found, and this gets to your question about what employers value. Yeah. What I found is that the ones that I hired, even though they were straight out of a graduate degree, they hadn't done any um, work in industry at all. Uh, they were still more adaptable in that business setting than candidates who came with only a bachelor's, even if they had actually been out for a while. And I, I think that that's the, the real concrete skill that graduate school teaches you. Uh, and people perhaps don't give themselves enough credit for having picked it up. Hmm. So being able to adapt to new situations and to find solutions, in, uh, creative solutions to sometimes complex problems yeah that and also the confidence to know that you've done it before so there's no reason to think you won't just keep doing it (laughs) right you you have that track record of problem solving the other thing that is a a concrete skill that you would acquire um, in grad school is attention to detail okay because that is critical in research and hopefully most of us anyway who who go through grad school they improve that skill during our time there for sure yeah i mean you know from your friends there are some you know people with masters and phd's who are you would still say that ah, that person not so detail oriented but i think if you compared them coming out of grad school to how they were going into it they've improved their attention to detail um yeah, and and that is so critical to anything you do. Um, all employees value, so all employers value employees who have a really well-developed uh, attention to detail. 
Okay, so so what I'm hearing is because these are very, you know, they're very uh, they're pillars like in in a, in a skill set. But what you're saying is then that specific skills or skills specific to a particular industry can then uh, be acquired. You know, someone who has gone through all those studies can then rel- relatively easily study and learn these specific skills that they'll need in in their new job. Yes, and I think that if if somebody is in grad school now and getting close to finishing and they're starting to sweat, what am I going to do after and <laughs> how would I use it? What they should do is actually write down a list. Um, pay attention and write down a list of those aspects of academia that you do like and those skills that you exercise in doing those sides of your degree and then start thinking about what industries and roles out there would allow you to continue to do those things right and of course at the same time you want to be really honest about what you hate of in grad school to try and minimize your exposure to those things yeah, in, yeah. The, in the new uh, job but honest um, to yourself right yeah you have to be honest with yourself but i think a lot of the time we don't take the few minutes is all it needs to open a Word document and start writing down lists. <laughs> uh, but until you do that, it's hard. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I certainly didn't. Then for sure, it, it must help. Uh, it's, it's, a very good, it's a very good piece of advice there. Yeah. Uh, to, to make it more concrete, in my case, um, as I said, what I liked was analyzing data and writing it up. So I knew, first of all, that I had a, a very strong qualitative, uh, sorry, quantitative aptitude. I was good at presenting my data. Uh, as a medical writer, you have to decide the best way to put together a graph. Um, you um, also need to be just a really good writer of English. And that's not something that comes from your graduate degree at all. It's something that you get through a lifetime of, of reading mm-hmm. or you don't have it. Um, <laughs> so I've never found people to be able to improve their standard of written English uh, very much. You kind of, by this age, got it or not. So I guess in this industry, it's a pass or fail type thing. (laughs) Um, You'd be amazed at how many really bad writers seem to make a living at it in the medical uh, communications field. But it's something clients appreciate a lot when they get somebody who can write well. They don't spend their time correcting their grammar. Um, that's not their job. Um, so, you know, those were the skills I could see I had. And so I looked around, well, what out there is a job where I could use those skills? And medical writing just came up. And the other aspect, too, is I knew that from my experience with um, teaching, that I really needed to have something that paid a, a decent salary. Mm-hmm. And it just—it just struck me that the pharmaceutical industry probably had money to support that kind of uh, position. So, and that's—that's that's of course true. All right. So I, I feel you—I feel like you—you you know, you were on this on your your boat, and you were able to chart a path to uh, to success. <laughs> yeah. Without uh, you know, with a fairly low uh, amount of, um, of of difficulty, which which is great. Yeah. Um, so you started you started giving some advice, and this kind of segues into the next set of questions that I'd like to ask, which are uh, about university, about the university as a, an environment where either you know if if you're still do, uh, doing your uh, graduate studies or you're finishing or you've just finished, that's there's you know there's still um, in my uh, in in my experience. There's a lot to gain uh, from being in that environment. You talked about friends. Uh, you know, you you now talked about okay, taking time in in your final years or months to um, explore and see what's out there that that fits your profile. Um, my first question would be, if you have any advice uh, on how to make the most of, of your time at university, especially in grad school, 
leading to your future in, in a non-academic career? Because it could happen that once you've decided, okay, this is not what I want to do after, again, people might feel like, oh, I'm, um, I'm, not, I'm now an, an, an actual outsider. I'm kind of an imposter finishing this but I, I, you know, I don't belong. There's nothing here for me. And um, I'd like your opinion on that. And maybe also uh, tell us you know, of tools that you know in universities that can help people uh, uh, choose their, their path uh, after graduating. Um, well, I'll, I'll tackle that as two separate questions, really, because there's the, the question about what tools are available to you in your university that you can use as a head start, you know, to, to moving out. Um, and that I don't really know that much about. Um, I can't say that I took advantage of any like career services or anything. What I did do when I was the managing editor at the um, company I referred to earlier, I did go to career days at the university, at McGill University. And um, that was a great way to meet grad students who were considering something different from academia. Um, so, you know, th that's something if you were uh, on the fence about remaining in grad school, I would definitely recommend seeing if there are uh, career services and career days that you can attend. Um, now, the other thing that you had had started asking was the imposter uh, syndrome. Feeling. Yeah, exactly. Like when you're when you're wrapping up, but you're not finding that you're really in anymore. You know, you, you do feel almost like you're letting down the people around you. And yeah. that is a really real thing. And it's a hard thing because you'll you'll never get encouragement from the professors to pursue a life outside of um, academia or, you know, the number who will encourage that is pretty small. Um, you know, for, for those of us in a truly academic uh, graduate program, rather than say med school, where obviously you are going to a specific job. Exactly. Um, but there is this kind of a sense that almost the outside world is a little bit dirty and tainted. Whereas, you know, in our, in our ivory tower, we can do experiments just for the joy of discovery and advancing human knowledge, which actually I still to this day believe is the um, only rationale that needs to exist for doing research. And we should keep it that way. Um, and, and I'm glad that many of my colleagues um, are still excited by that and, and want to continue in it. But it, it just, for me personally, it wasn't the best fit. Um, so I would, I would not, I would try and resist that feeling of being an imposter or letting down your um, peers because you're not. You're just uh, charting your own path, and you're not ignoring everything you learned in grad school. As I said, I, I use it on a daily basis and I could not do what I do now had I not gone through the program. Yeah. That's a great point. And uh, yeah, uh, imposter syndrome, uh, it's, I think it's natural, but uh, I'd like to, uh, I, I have to find uh, that there's probably a publication of uh, percentages of people coming out of grad school and where they go after. And um, I would imagine that you know a fairly large percentage does not stay in academia, but they still uh, you know they they do their graduate studies, they go through, and like you say, uh, it's a, a heritage, it's a, um, a treasure that they'll carry with them and that will help them throughout their professional life for sure. Yes, you know, just having those letters after your name is a big deal. Um, and there are jobs in industry that will be forever close to you if you do not have a PhD. Okay. okay. Um, like I said, my PhD was on nothing related to uh, drugs or the medical field. It doesn't matter. 
it could be in anything. Um, the fact that you have demonstrated your ability to do independent research mm-hmm. and get an accredited uh, PhD is uh, it's all you need to kind of prove your worth. Yeah, I hadn't. I never looked at it like that. It's true. It's true. And uh, and um, well, maybe it's something I, I'd like to look into also is, and I guess you know with these interviews. I'll start having, and we'll start, uh, you know, and the listeners too, having a better idea of all the types of jobs that PhDs end up uh, uh, end up working on, and and um, where the, you, having that PhD has probably been part of uh, why they got these these positions. Yes, um, the PhD, and you know, I don't want to uh, undervalue a master's either. Um, I, I spent uh, four years working on my master's research, and in many ways, the study I did was perhaps more impressive <laughs> than my <laughs> PhD research. Mm. Uh, but um, you know, for people who have a master's or preferably a PhD, um, if they come to me and my colleagues at Stratonym. Um, that's something that right off the bat we we look at as a uh, a good sign. Um, we really wouldn't consider somebody without, in fact. Um, and we we are interested in what was your research on? Tell us about it. So it, it matches the profile that that you're looking for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's that that kind of mindset you get of being confident, self confident, and uh, detail oriented. Um, often people like that you kind of want to be your own boss, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we built with uh, Stratonym was a company where instead of being a corporation with lots of employees, we're basically an umbrella for people like ourselves. So people would come on board as independent consultants rather than employees. And when new projects come in, we look to see which of our consultants have a good fit in terms of uh, their interests and their ex- expertise and then we'd offer those ones who fit well the project, but they would never be under an obligation to accept a given project. Um, so it's really more uh, like a, um, a freelance like a platform. Yeah, a platform for them. Um, obviously, that means, as the flip side, that there's no guarantee there'll be a project for a given consultant six months from now. So it wouldn't work for somebody who's afraid of the unknown or doesn't have the independence and confidence to cultivate um, other clients. But for for very independent folks, it's the perfect uh, match. Yeah, and I guess they can tailor their workload, uh, you know, as they as they wish in a way. Yes, exactly. Yeah, excellent. That, that, that's very very interesting. Um, actually, now you mentioned that you have. You know, you've spent a, a certain amount of time, a considerable amount of time hiring people, and I have some questions that that pertain to that uh, in 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 a certain way. But but given that you've you've had that role for for a certain amount of time and that you've you know gone through different CVs and interviews, um, I'm gonna turn the questions a little bit on you know turn them around and ask them a little bit differently, and and these would be. Uh, what habits um, would you um, would you uh, advise uh, people that are finishing or that have just finished and that want to, uh, you know, present themselves, sell their CV to a certain employer? Uh, what what habits or resources would you would you uh, advise them to use to uh, improve their abilities of uh, again of of uh, promoting themselves on the job market? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, it's not something that we're used to thinking of doing, you know, like selling ourselves. Exactly. Uh, I, myself, until I got to that point, it was like out of my, you know, from my radar completely. Uh, and, you know, given that you interviewed, a, you know, a lot of people, you know, throughout your, your career, uh, like what, what, have, what would you say, maybe if it's complicated, maybe go, go at it another way. What's, uh, a model, let's say, of a candidate that that has impressed you. Let's say an ideal candidate. How you know what what can our listeners do to to reach that level of okay, this person 
is presenting really well. They're really, you know, they've, they're showing the value of their CV. They're showing, you know, they're hitting all the stops in terms of, okay, this interview was good. Uh, this is a candidate that I need to interview again. Right. Um, yeah, that's a great question. Having sat on the other side of the table and um, had many different styles of CVs coming at me and many different uh, personalities on the, on the other side. Um, I think what I look for is somebody who seems to have a plan. Um, and that's something which you'd think everybody would have with a graduate degree because you had to devise a plan of attack to uh, reach the objective you had with your research, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's great practice for life, life after because you, you really will never get um, anywhere unless you can describe to yourself and to others like your interviewer where you want to get to. A question that often I would ask of candidates is where they see themselves in five years. Okay. So you really want to have some answers about, you know, where, you, where is it you want to go? Um, and and a, have a plan to get there. Um, somebody who's interviewing you will want to see that, that you've thought about it, that you're not just letting the current carry you wherever it wants to go, um, but you're actually directing yourself. That's very, very interesting. Yeah. So having a plan being... Yeah. Okay, okay. Having a plan is one, but uh, I keep coming back to self-confidence because... Really, the candidates who, from that first handshake and sitting across from you, they, uh, th you just have a feeling like, oh, yeah, I think this one is going to work out. It's, uh, they have that self-confidence. They're, um, they're not desperate, you know, and they're not needy. They come in with a sense of their own value. Um, and they convey that to me as the interviewer. Um, so I've often wondered what it is that makes one person self-confident and another shy. Uh, I don't have the answer to that, but if anybody out there does, if it's you listening, um, try and work on it, um, unless you know you're already very confident, because it will make a Big, big difference. I think it, it definitely can be worked on for sure. Uh, I myself was in my in my youth uh, like timid, you know, and, and more of a shy person. And uh, well, actually, I must say, going through the PhD, presenting your data week after week, you know, uh, to a, a, a room full of people, uh, you know, and I've also taught a little bit before, a little bit like UTAing in um, in university. But uh, it's definitely something people can can work on, and uh, uh, I'm gonna want to have someone from from uh, one of these career uh, career service uh, offices. But um, I th I seem to remember that at McGill you could even do uh, practice interviews. Ah, okay, uh, that's and great. so because uh, de definitely, if if it's not in your nature, because you're more introvert. Uh, you're shy, etc. How can I say it's not a deal breaker? It's definitely something people can work on. The thing is finding the resources, and uh, wherever your university is, for sure, uh, people should go to their career center or the the you know the person or the the service that that takes care of that and see what resources they have for you because there's nothing uh, like uh, like rehearsing uh, and, and and because again this and tell me if I'm if you agree with me, the interview is kind of a dance, especially the first one. Mm -hmm. Yes. You're, you're getting a feel of the employer. The employer is getting a feel of you. And like, what's that, that cliche that comes up all the time? You can never make another first impression. You only get the one chance to do it. Exactly. You only that, get that's, the one chance for a first that's impression. That's definitely true. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's kind of like if you're an actor or a singer, how do you, you know, how are you able to go on stage and, and please an, an audience? Well, by rehearsing. I'm going to be oversimplifying, but I was going to say it's as simple as that, is use the tools that, that are around you and, and universities now have very good services that help people 
you know, that go even to the point of doing like fake interviews, which is awesome. And it may feel or seem weird if something like this existed at your university and you're, you know, you're thinking of going through interviews, it's going to be priceless for you. Go and, and do it because you, that you'll have that firm handshake because you will have practiced it. You'll have that voice that's not trembling because you've practiced it and rehearsed it. I, I, anyway, tell me if you agree and if you have maybe something to add, but I would say if this is available where, you, where you're studying, definitely use, yeah. use the service. I would do it. I would do it even if you're planning to stay in academia. And the reason is that the interview is a, an interaction that you have all the time in life, even if it's not for a job, even if you're meeting somebody new who you've never met before at a party, you know, uh, or any kind of social event, you're meeting a new person. If you are a good interviewer, you know how to present yourself well right off the bat. Mm -hmm. You know how to engage the person you're talking to. You know how to make yourself seem positive. So, even if you're you're planning to stay in, um, you should definitely take advantage and practice interviewing. Because you definitely uh, you'll have to interview for an academic position and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, for sure. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Hmm. Interesting. Excellent. Well, I'm super happy to have you on specifically because of, of this question and, and because I know all the, the baggage that, you know, the experience that you bring uh, in that domain. And, and the, you know, once you've done, I know, a hundred, I don't know how many interviews, you can almost see the, the perfect candidate. And if you could close your eyes, <laughs> yes, yeah. you can hear what they sound like, you can feel their handshake. And uh, so that's super, super uh, important and, and, and great input. You know, though, just one one quick point to that. Uh, although it's important to be self-confident, that is not the same thing as being cocky or entitled. Uh, I totally agree. Um, so an employer or, and, and this could be for a university position or a job outside, um, will be turned off big time if you come across as uh, kind of full of yourself. And um, I actually had a... Uh, Can, a candidate who sent in uh, their CV for a job that I'd posted. And I called them, um, and they were just very low energy on the call, seemed to be, you know, doing something else at the time. Okay. And I said, well, maybe we should uh, bring you in for an interview. They said, yeah, why not? <laughs> and I said, "Well, how about we don't then?" Oh, wow. <laughs> and that was that. Ouch. Uh, because no, that's just not the attitude that an employer uh, wants. Of course, uh, companies now are teams, and often big teams, and people need to be, uh, you know, yeah, to be personable and uh, yeah, and humble. At us, yeah, in, in the, yeah, uh, yeah. The, just uh, there, there needs to be a sense that you're willing to pay some dues. And uh, maybe take even a step backwards to get your foot in the door at a new, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, a new type of uh, industry. Excellent. <laughs> That's a very, thank you for that because it's also, people might err by going to the other extreme and, and of course that, 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 that's not ideal. <laughs> so we talked about, we just touched uh, upon the, the, the idea of uh, taking, taking advantage of, of maybe career services that exist at university. But um, I, I wonder whether you, in your, uh, in your path that brought you where you are today, whether you had uh, um, the, the privilege of having mentors, you know, that were crucial at, at different points in, in helping you move forward in, in your, be it in your, you know, in your, gra in your graduate studies or even after in your career. Mm, okay, definitely. Um, so in my graduate career, my thesis advisor and all the profs on my thesis committee at Princeton were just amazing at uh, that fine balance of giving advice without handholding. Okay, so they they also gave me the freedom to fail, <laughs> you know, um, to go down dead ends and then figure my way out on my own. Um, without panicking. So there was that sense that, yeah, we, uh, we let you be independent, 
um, and we'll you know give pointers here and there. But if if you fail, it's not the end of the world. Um, and that's something which I really appreciated, and it was um, uh, a big advantage of doing my degree in that department. It's uh, it was a special place for um, for mentoring. Um, yeah. Um, they also do things quite differently there to most other departments where, um, you know, in, in most departments, you will come in to work in somebody's lab and they might even give you your research question, right? And then when they publish, when you, when you publish your research, your advisor is automatically going to be an author on, on everything. But it was different at Princeton. Um, you had to come up with your own question. Okay. You really couldn't work on the exact same thing as your supervisor. Um, and uh, it's just you as an author on your own articles. So that, that was handy. Uh, now, after my studies, I can't honestly say I had any mentors. Uh, but then again, an, uh, I didn't really feel I needed one. I was uh, 34 years old when I graduated because I'd spent so long in university. Um, and by the time I was in my second medical writer job, that managing editor position, by then I was playing the mentor myself. Yeah, that, that's interesting because what I was going to say next, uh, like maybe like putting you a little bit on the spot, but not really. Uh, I've interviewed uh, Rob Hutchison, who you know very well. And he, he mentioned you as one of his mentors. So uh, I'd like to maybe again turn, turn my questions around given that, you know, that I have you on the mic. <laughs> uh, and, um, and maybe think of, of uh, because now, now you're, you're working, uh, you know, you have, you have Stratnim, you're working in a, in a, in a team there, but uh, in your previous um, positions, you've had the chance again to um, help uh, people develop, you know, that were coming from academia grow into their their new uh, medical writing or medical editing career and uh, so have this kind of mentorship uh, position uh, towards different uh, people and and rob uh, mentioned specifically how you really helped him uh, learning the the metier of of uh, of medical editor and um so what I was going to ask you, and I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way, um, it would be uh, the, the question would be, as a mentor, how how did you help people um, mature into into uh, an, a domain or you know a, a, an area of activity that they, they were not uh, proficient before? Um, I think it would boil down to devising a plan. So if there was a, uh, if there's somebody who has scope to improve in a given area, right? Uh, making a plan means clearly defining what it is that isn't optimal right now. Mm -hmm. um, and then describing what it would look like if it were optimal. And then what would you have to do to get from where you are now to that preferred position? Hmm. Uh, and it could involve uh, specific readings in areas that the person is not strong in. It could mean introducing a different process for doing an aspect of the job. Um, it could be um, really as simple as turning off Facebook during the day. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it could be anything. It'll be different for different people. Um, and uh, I think if people can do this for themselves, rather than waiting to, uh, to be mentored by someone else, then they're really a step ahead. Um, you know, a lot of what I would say a mentor does is uh, teach or lead by example. So, um, you know, you're not necessarily uh, directing somebody and, and telling them do this, do that, but just in your own um, way that you're in the world and in, in your job, um, you're setting a good example. I think, you know, 
what I've always tried to impart, um, because it's something I, I believe in for myself, is being unafraid to try something and just knowing it's not going to be the end of the world if you fail. It's just an, just like a, uh, an opportunity, really, to, to dust yourself off, try again in a different way. And I think that um, that attitude of owning your own mistakes is very powerful. Uh, and I couldn't have taken the plunge into freelance consulting where, you know, I have no, no um, salary that is every week I know I, I get my paycheck, right? Or two, two weeks. It's, it's all entirely dependent on me going out, getting projects and doing them. Yeah, and the book always stops at your desk. <laughs> yeah, but knowing, just having that knowledge that, okay, things, you might make a mistake, but own it and correct. Mm -hmm. yeah. I still think that, especially in this in this context of transitioning to uh, an industry that you may you know know little about uh, of the, about the nitty gritty, someone that's already inside that can show you the ropes is still you know can still play a, a, a very important role in in you know in launching you into your new career. Yes. Not yeah. hand-holding, uh, you know, forever and ever, but that initial push. Yeah. And, and that initial, um, you know, example, like that person has probably gone through that same path, right? So if they can share what it was like for them their first, um, you know, first day, first week, first month, that's really helpful. Uh, what we did when I was managing editors, we had a uh, onboarding guide for new hires to have written down for them those key things that they really needed to um, be grabbing during that first day, first week, first month. Yeah, but a, a mentor would be, you know, very handy in that, in that um, situation as well. And it's, this could just be another employee who's just been there a bit longer than you. Mm -hmm. Someone um, that you shadow. Yeah. For example. Yep. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I don't want people to think that without an, a mentor, they are going to fail because that's, that's not been my experience for myself. No, again, especially, you know, people who, who have these skills of problem solving and of self-studying that, you know, that, that we're talking about, which often will, you know, they'll be able to learn a new skill in a couple of days because they need to and they just dig in and then they come out of that, that intense study knowing knowing most of what they need. So Exactly, yeah. Well, we've, uh, we've reached my last question, which is kind of a, a role play uh, question a little bit the way I set it up, um, you know, to kind of close the interview with uh, some advice to the listeners. And the idea is uh, that you imagine that uh, you know you're in front of an audience of young finalists or young graduates uh, just like you were when when you when you finished and or when you were finishing and uh, you know they're struggling they may have fears worries doubts uh, about finding their place in the job market about tracing their journey towards uh, you know a fulfilling and productive life and uh, to these people that are in front of you I'd like you to to tell what two or three basic strategies or principles they could follow starting today to put in place uh, a realistic and attainable transition plan. You know, to this plan that you talked about, you know, when the person comes with a plan, how, what were the first steps and the basic principles that they can start applying today to start writing their plan? I would say that the principles are, are kind of, all mindsets. Um, so the first one I would say is something I'd mentioned before this idea about paying your dues a bit. Um, like when I started in medical writing, that's how it felt for me. And I really didn't like it, <laughs> um, but you, you just have to realize that you can't walk straight out of grad school um, or from one industry. In my case, since I was already out, teaching for a while um, you can't walk straight out into a ceo position at a company in a different industry you, you need time in the new field to build your new network 
Um, and that's what you're going to be doing from the moment that you take a new job, even if it's a very humble one. Um, you're building a new network. Uh, so I would I'd encourage anyone considering that move uh, to industry to take advantage of job openings that even if the position seems a bit humble, mm -hmm. you can see that it has the potential for career advancement down the road. So either directly in that same company you're applying to, or else if you see that it could be a stepping stone to something bigger and brighter elsewhere. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and, and just have the mindset that there is absolutely no such thing as useless experience. Um, you know, one job I took when I was uh, an undergrad was telephone fundraising <laughs> for the Vancouver Symphony. And I did a two-week training there in telephone marketing. Okay. And, you know, I still use the things I learned then at that little job <laughs> uh, to this day. So I really believe there's absolutely no such thing as useless experience. So go ahead, pay your dues, try something. But the flip side of that, it's the, this we could call principle number two, mm -hmm. is that honestly, this is the only life you're going to get. Yeah, that's, you that know, seems to be true. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if you don't end up living the life you dream of, that's that's kind of a tragedy. So don't let yourself stagnate in a new role that it's clearly not working for you. Um, you know, always keep your eyes on where you want to end up and, and do what you need and try to get there. Um, and actually try to get there fairly quickly. Yeah. Cause uh, you can, you can get in uh, through a, you know, a, a lower position, but then if you prove your capacities, You know, management can pull you up two or three rungs in the in the ladder, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, yeah. in one time because oh no, this person definitely could be editor right away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you know, if if you um, can tell that you're ready for it and they're not doing that, there's no law saying you have to stay at that same company. That's true. So yeah, I know I know so many people. I think it's probably more than half for the people out there whose lives really haven't lived up to their expectations. And that's usually because they've convinced themselves at some point that they are stuck where they are, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, but it's entirely in their own heads. So I would say like the, the key mindset is just to keep reminding yourself that if what you're doing, say that new job outside academia you've started, if it doesn't live up to your expectations, that doesn't mean that you made the wrong move. And that you've somehow failed. So you really should have just stayed in academia after all. No, that's not what that means. You can always leave that new job. You can find another job either in the same field or perhaps you've discovered that field just isn't for you. So you do something brand new again. You're really never stuck unless you convince yourself you're stuck. And so um, what, what I would really recommend is that everybody is their own pep squad. <laughs> mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. when things aren't working out, Just keep telling yourself that things will turn around for you one way or another. You know, because think about it. In your life, haven't they always? They always do mm -hmm. work out for you. And and uh, I'd say that perhaps the um, the most important life lesson I learned in grad school wasn't from one of my mentors. It wasn't from a prof. It was from another master student. And uh, I was, uh, this was, you know, at University of British Columbia when I was in my master's there. One day I was whining about something. It was so small that I, now I don't even remember what it was about at all. But I was saying, I felt like I'd screwed up my life. And he said to me, you know, you really have to actively try very, very hard to really screw up your life. <laughs> And you have to get yourself addicted to hard drugs or commit some serious crime you you cannot accidentally screw up your life so stop worrying so much <laughs> so and i've reminded myself of that over the years when things weren't going smoothly um you know it, it helps in the self-confidence department too so i would i would advise that that uh people keep telling themselves that things are going to work out um and and not be afraid to try and and fail 
Hmm. So stay limber, be able to reorient at any time. If something's not working for you, you reorient because you know, you're not stuck anywhere. Yeah. That's what I'm hearing. And, uh, and believe in yourself and work towards your objective. Absolutely. Awesome. This, uh, this has been a great interview. We're reaching the end now. Uh, it, this, it's been a, a great pleasure having you uh, at the microphone. Uh, I think, uh, I think we've, we've touched many points that are, that are very interesting and very important for all the listeners and anyone that's now thinking of transitioning, even transitioning between jobs. It, it can be stressful also. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so thank you very much. Uh, I just ask you maybe now to, to remind the listeners of uh, maybe the website, the, the Stratnim website. And uh, if you have a Twitter handle that you want to share, I guess this would be the moment. Yes. Thanks, David. Um, first of all, I really appreciate the uh, chance to chat with you about these topics uh, because it's always interesting to review where you've been, you know, which I've, I've actually done in the process of, of the interview. Um, and uh, anyone who is interested in the area of medical communications um, can look at our website, which is stratonym.com, S-T-R-A-T-E-N-Y-M. Um, and our Twitter handle is just at stratonym. And that'll give you a description of the kinds of things that we work on and uh, the biographies of some of our consultants. So you can see the diversity of backgrounds people have. And uh, I guess they can contact you on the website. Yes, of course. Excellent. All right, Mark, again, this was great. Thank you so much. And uh, let's talk soon. Thanks, David. And thanks to everybody who's uh, listened out there. Take care. Cheers. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. Head over to papaphd.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas, and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests. <music>